Thanks for tuning in to My Weight Live, the podcast where we talk to medical experts about the latest research and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at myweightwhattoknow.com or search My Weight What to Know on Facebook. We're always posting new articles, videos, and tools that make living a healthy life easier. Hi, everyone. Welcome to My Weight Live. Tonight, we're going to be talking with obesity specialist, Dr. Sean Wharton. Dr. Wharton is the co-author of the Canadian Adult Obesity Clinical Practice Guidelines, which were released in August. And he's going to be sharing his expert perspective on a whole bunch of issues related to weight and health. I'm so glad you're here with us. Dr. Wharton, it is an honor to get to speak with you this evening. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here, Ainsley. So I want to start by talking about something that I think is the number one frustration for so many people when it comes to weight loss. We work hard, we lose weight, but over time, many of us end up gaining the weight back, sometimes more, and lots of people tell us they've been caught in this cycle more than once. Talk a little bit about why weight regain happens and what we can do about it. So what we see is that there's a short-term amount of weight loss that usually happens, but then with that short-term weight loss, there's a cascade of neurochemicals and hormones that are generated by the body and the brain to say, I don't like this weight loss. I want to regain it, and I want to regain even more weight than you previously lost, just in case you try to lose this weight again. I'll get some extra weight on so that it makes it even harder. So our body fights back against weight loss all the time. So we have to all recognize that this is part of the biological process that whenever we're trying to lose weight, we're fighting against neurochemicals and hormones that want to regain weight. This doesn't mean that we cannot get weight loss and keep it down over the longer term, but it does mean that the battle is against these neurochemicals and hormones to keep the weight down over the longer term. So what I hear you saying is it's not our imagination. The battle is real. <laughs> and we're going to talk about some of the things we can do to kind of calm that kind of our body's response. That's absolutely correct. We've got to be able to figure out which neurochemicals, which hormones, where are they coming from, how active are these hormones that are trying to push the weight back up? Can we stop them in any way? Can we temper them? Um, can we block the bad ones? Can we enhance the good ones? Those are some of the biological and scientific principles we've been using to understand elevated weight and why we can't keep weight down over the longer term. Okay, Dr. Wharton, let's say that someone watching at home has lost weight and really wants to maintain it. What do the new guidelines and your kind of professional experience tell us about what's been proven to help people maintain weight loss over the long run? a lot of people will lose weight and try to keep it off longer and they're nervous because they know that keeping the weight off over the longer term is really hard. So what does the evidence show? So the evidence really starts with being compassionate and having empathy. The person themselves has to recognize why they're actually doing it. What's the value behind what they're trying to actually do? So before we go to all of the specific therapeutic interventions, the most important aspect is why are you doing it and who are you doing it for? When you wake up in the morning, who cares about you? Who do you feel is important in your life? Who do you love and who and and why are you doing this? So those values are abilities to be able to keep you on track. 
when we go into the very specific ways that you can keep the weight down, those all work, but they only work when you have that long-term value as to why you're doing this in the first place. That's the way I start with most patients and in regards to talking to them about what they're actually doing because the rest of it comes a little bit easier once you realize why you're actually doing something. So um, so we can look forward to having a better chance to do all the interventions that are still challenging, but now we have a better chance of actually getting them right. What has been proven? What do the guidelines tell us in your experience also? What does work uh, for losing weight and keeping it off over the long term? Many people want to have a simplistic answer. They want to reduce it to one or two things, but it's, it's, it's a, a very complicated reason as to why the weight went up in the first place. It's very uh, complicated and biologically, physiologically connected to why the weight doesn't stay off and goes back up. So therefore, our answer, unfortunately, also is complicated. It's a complex answer. The complexities have, we've tried to, to whittle it down into five main things. The first thing is medical nutrition therapy, which is not a diet because we've used the word diet too many times and has negative connotations to it. It's eating healthy. Activity is number two, moving more than you did yesterday. Those two, so those two things are very positive. And everybody kind of knows about this, eating less and trying to be more active. But then we come to the three pillars that actually sustain these activities of medical nutrition therapy and activity. And those three pillars are psychological intervention, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, pharmacotherapy or the use of medication, and finally, bariatric surgery. So that's what really works. And I think so much of the time, you know, when we in society think about weight loss, we just focus on those first two things, kind of diet and exercise. But as Dr. Sue Peterson says, for most people living with obesity, those things alone aren't going to be enough. We're talking about weight loss, but the guidelines really encourage people to not focus on weight alone as a measure of success. So what do you recommend people focus on instead of weight if health is their ultimate goal? The most important thing to focus on when you're trying to get weight down and keep it down is the value as to why you're doing it. What are you going to do with that extra health? Um, what are you going to do with those extra years? Who are you going to take care of now that you have extra energy? And how are you going to contribute to our society or to helping others? So that, that's the value as to what you should be focusing on. Focus on the overall longevity, the overall um, uh, happiness that comes from extra, extra health. So I think once we're focused on those type of goals, and we try to get away from this word goals, because once we try to focus on those type of values and morals, as opposed to just a short-term goal, then we have a much better chance of having this the weight loss that you have or the health that you've gained last longer. Right. So you wrote a chapter in the guidelines. And in that chapter, you talk about the genetics that play into weight. And you also talk about the role that the brain plays in determining our weight. So tell us, what is that role? How does the brain affect our efforts to lose weight and keep it off? 
I think it's really important that people understand that the brain is the primary organ that controls weight. When we talk about other medical diseases, such as diabetes, for instance, we know it's the pancreas that is in control of insulin and a number of other hormones. When it comes to weight, it is all about the brain. So what are those parts of the brain that actually do it? The main part is the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus does something we call homeostasis. Homeostasis means that you want, so homeo is living or life, and then stasis is keeping that stable. So for mm-hmm. instance, if we try to not blink for a period of time, you can do that for a couple of seconds, but you can't do it for very long because the hypothalamus says, nope, homeostasis means you need to keep blinking. So it does the same thing when it comes to weight. It tries to control the weight so that your weight is as high as possible for the survival in the conditions that you happen to be living in. And our genetic brain continues to think that our conditions are horrible and a famine is actually coming. So that's the homeostatic part of the brain. The other part of the brain is the hedonic part of the brain that just really loves food or really loves pleasure. So above and beyond just getting past the actual hunger, we actually end up having taking in extra calories because we really love those components. Um, now, that part is a survival part also. It's just not a hedonistic pleasure part. Is the more that you could like a pleasurable act that keeps you alive, the better chance the species will stay alive. So the hedonic part of your brain is responsible for eating. It's also responsible for reproduction. So you better enjoy that part a lot or else we wouldn't all be here. That's a hedonistic part of the brain. So those two parts, the hypothalamus and the hedonistic part, combine to keep weight up as much as possible. And then we have the third part of the brain that is part of this, and that's the executive lobe. The executive lobe says, I better not have too much fun or things may end up going south. I better try to control the hormones within the hypothalamus as much as I possibly can. And that executive lobe really only works when we have had a lot of rest and when it's working um, in a proper manner, when we're not overthinking, when we're not stressed. So that's the only mechanism that we have to try to stop those parts of the brain from overeating. So three parts of the brain, the hedonistic, the pleasure part, the hypothalamus, the homeostatic part, getting rid of the hunger, and then the executive lobe, which tries to counteract those two parts to make things a little bit better when it comes to keeping weight down. Okay, Dr. Wharton, I want to drill in there on what you were talking about with the executive lobe, because I think that's the part of the brain that controls what we traditionally think of as willpower. Correct. The executive lobe is the willpower part of the brain. It's our cognitive functioning. So you can, of course, willpower your brain to keep your eyelids open for a couple seconds longer, right? That is the executive lobe functioning. But eventually what happens is the hypothalamus ends up taking over for really critical type of things like blinking. That's a really nice example of how the cognitive lobe works for a little bit of time and then the hypothalamus ends up taking over. Now, when it comes to eating, our executive lobe or the cognitive lobe can take over for a longer period of time if we train it. You can train your executive lobe to control your hypothalamus. The same way if I asked you right now to use your executive lobe to slow your heart rate down, it would be very hard to do. (laughs) But if you trained like a yogi does for months, 
months and years, you can actually do it. You can use your brain to change the functioning within your hypothalamus. And that's what we need to do when it comes to elevated weight. We need to train our brain to control the hunger, sensations, the cravings, the hedonistic pleasure activities that we're seeking when it comes to food. We can actually train our brain and that's executive lobe cognitive behavioral training. All right. So that's exactly what you were talking about earlier with behavioral interventions as cognitive behavioral therapy. Give us just a quick example of what that might look like, of, of kind of training that executive lobe, maybe to, to give us a little more willpower in, in situations where it might be useful. Giving examples of how exactly the executive lobe really works is, is, is important because it helps people on a day-to-day basis. One of the first things we need to know is that if you put yourself in a vulnerable position, it's very difficult for your executive lobe to overpower it. So if you don't eat throughout the entire day and you are really hungry at nighttime after your brain is exhausted, you have no way of winning. You're not going to win the battle against the hedonistic lobe and the hypothalamus lobe. So preparation is one of the most important things. And so many people need to eat on a regular basis throughout the day. Think about what they're actually going to be eating and more protein, more fiber, so they feel more satiated and also recognizing those vulnerable time frames. So we know in the evening are vulnerable times because the brain is tired, it doesn't have enough oxygen. And we give in to hedonistic type of behaviors. So once you recognize that this is a vulnerable time, we're now in a position where we can think of other things we can do to temper that hedonistic lobe. And those are some examples of how you can use that executive lobe to try to dampen everything that's happening in terms of overeating. Well, I'm so glad you're talking about this because I think some of us feel like, you know, I just don't have any willpower or I'm weak. But what I hear you saying is that you know, you just don't want to tax that executive lobe too much. There's just only so much it can do. So trying to avoid temptation, trying to not put yourself in a situation where that executive lobe is just going to get worn out quickly is really the key. It's not our fault. It's just a matter of the way our brains are set up. Our brains are designed to be able to get as much pleasure as possible in the vulnerable timeframes. So really, we do have to uh, focus on not giving ourselves those difficult times. And the idea is to prepare as much as possible. And the thing is, is some people are more vulnerable than others. So when you recognize what your vulnerable times, what your vulnerable triggers are, you then need to either write them down, be cognizant of these vulnerable times, these vulnerable situations. For some people, it's going into the kitchen. For some people, it's grocery shopping. It's going to restaurant. For some people, it's sitting down at nine o'clock in the evening in front of Netflix. That's their vulnerable time. If that's it, then you've got to adjust and shift things so that you're not susceptible to the vulnerability. We are fallible. Our brains are designed in a very specific way. So if you want to be able to prevent the behaviors that you don't want to do, preparing for it makes it really, really possible. We can actually beat it. All right. So in the guidelines, there's also a lot of conversation about the environmental factors that can make weight difficult to manage and weight loss tricky to maintain. Things like increased availability of ultra processed foods, more stress in our lives, less time to cook at home. How do you recommend we kind of play defense to help ourselves reach a healthier weight and keep that weight off over the long term? 
We know that there are fast food stores everywhere. There's ultra processed foods. During the uh, COVID-19, people were more susceptible to wanting to buy uh, foods that could be stored easily. So that means a lot more of the carbohydrates. And um, so there were there were there are many challenges every single day. So how do we deal with these challenges? What we know is that it's going to be a very difficult battle against the food industry. And so um, so. Trying to battle the entire food industry is a little bit of a challenge, but it's a it's an important one. We need to do it. We need to not give up on on stopping the excessive commercials or the amount of sugar in different foods and preservatives. So let's keep on battling. On a day-to-day basis, if a person recognizes the value of what they are doing, why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, and if I'm trying to be healthy and, and ensure appropriate weight management, I will not drive by the Kentucky Fried Chicken on my way home. I will find a different way home so that I'm not triggered. I will not go to the grocery store when I'm hungry because when I go to the grocery store when I'm hungry, that's when I buy all the carbohydrates. I will ensure to look at those vulnerable times that I have and not be close to a convenience store or not leave the house to get um, the wrong types of foods, not have the wrong types of foods in the house. So that if I do, if I am craving foods at the wrong time, I have to physically get up and leave and actually buy that food. So it gives me time to actually think So those are ways that we can deal with these environmental challenges. They're all cognitive behavioral skills. There's no other significant way for us to really deal with it besides thinking about the values to what it is we're actually doing. Gosh, those are all fantastic examples. I'm so glad you brought them up because those are really concrete strategies of things we can do to try to mitigate some of that. That's wonderful. Dr. Wharton, one of the big takeaways from the Obesity Clinical Practice Guidelines is that stigma towards people living with obesity and weight bias in general, they're not just unkind, they can actually lead to weight gain and worse health for people living with obesity. So talk about what weight bias is and how it can make living a healthy life harder. So addressing the issues of bias and stigma in obesity are really important. And that's why it's the first chapter in our guidelines. We couldn't have moved forward with other chapters without addressing this. People frequently don't even understand what the word bias and stigma actually mean. So what is bias? Bias is if you see somebody who's 250 pounds and you automatically say to yourself, they don't have enough willpower, they don't have enough compliance. How can they have compliance? They're 250 pounds. What are they doing going into that fast food restaurant? That is bias. Everyone else can go into a fast food restaurant or that person who's 250 pounds may have been 350 pounds previously and they're down 100 pounds and working really hard to actually keep that off. Again, most people think this way. We all do. We're all biased. Everybody listening to this is biased and I'm biased as well. The issue is how do you deal with that bias and how do you not act on it? Acting on your bias leads to stigma and then discrimination. So what you want to do is you want to do the best you possibly can to know that you have bias, just accept it and possibly work on it the best that you actually can. And then 
do everything you can not to act on your biases. Not acting on your bias means not telling somebody who has elevated weight to just exercise and eat a little bit less, get it together. Those words, get it together, not to be used when it comes to patients living with elevated weight. The, the idea of using compassion and empathy, understanding biology, and that there's genetics, and that there's a struggle is what you want to do to be able to deal with bias, stigma, and discrimination. Without dealing with that, you will not be able to address elevated weight. Patients won't be able to move forward with the right treatment options. So let's deal with that first. So, you know, I know there are many family doctors out there who don't understand kind of what you just said, that there's genetic components that, you know, for many people, you know, lifestyle changes, diet and exercise aren't enough. What should someone say if their doctor says, eat less, move more is the solution to their challenges with weight? I would say for patients who are talking to a healthcare provider who is not really understanding all of the the biological aspects, the physiology aspects, and is using their own bias to make a recommendation. And the recommendation is usually eat less, exercise more because of the person's bias. Now, the way to deal with that is to give them the information and the evidence that comes from a reliable source. So not from just Dr. Google, but from 60 healthcare providers and researchers and academics across Canada who've put together a guidelines. So the guideline was written so that patients could actually take the document to their doctor and say that, I understand that your recommendation for me is to eat less and exercise more, and I've been working on that as much as I can. But there's also some evidence here that talks about biology and physiology and some actual evidence-based recommendations that we haven't talked about that I would like to actually look at. If you could guide me in, in this, that would be very, 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 very helpful. And I think that that's where, um, uh, how we can address issues of bias. So, Bias and stigma are very similar similar to prejudice and racism. And frequently, the only way is education. So the doctor is not going to magically not be biased anymore and not say exercise more and eat less. They're not going to do that unless they're armed with evidence that there is something else, that there's other contrary information, there's genetic information, there's hormonal information. So they need that, that education to get past them acting on their own biases. So what I hear you saying is the guidelines are that tool that we can use to educate our physician to say, you know, here is this document that, you know, specialists put together, you know, people who really specialize in this. Um, so here, here's what the research shows in terms of what might be a, a great treatment for me. Correct. Right after the bias and stigma chapter, we wrote the chapter on the science behind weight change. Because to get rid of your bias and your stigma, you need the science. So, because there's no other way to actually to actually do it, we just can't. Um, uh, when there are a number of academics and doctors who went to medical school, are are you're trying to change their opinion? There's only one way to do it, and that is through medical science and evidence, because that's what we learned for so so many years. That's why we have that series of bias and stigma are real. And the way to address it 
is by using biology and science and also recognizing compassion and empathy. Dr. Wharton, last question. In the guidelines, there's a lot of discussion of all the benefits of modest weight loss, even as little as one kilogram. Can you talk about the benefits of losing even small amounts of weight? So even if we feel stuck at a plateau, if we are maintaining even a small amount of weight loss, that's not a failure? So what we know is that as you get older, you tend to gain gain weight. Everybody gains a little bit of weight, and maybe that's a protection mechanism we have because maybe as you get older, you wouldn't have as much food in the village, so you had to be a more efficient human being. So if you can maintain your weight every year, that is a big step. It means that you actually did something. You actually were working harder to get the actual calories down, or you were moving more and trying to burn off some of those calories with maybe increasing muscle mass. So we know just staying weight stable means that you did something, and that usually corresponds with an improvement in health. So staying stable is an improvement in health. Getting your weight down even further, if you're even going down one kilo, which is about 2.2 pounds, you're going to get an improvement in your blood sugars. And you can go from the pre-diabetes stage into the normal glycemic range where your blood sugars are actually normal or not pop into that into that pre-diabetes stage. So every little bit of weight that comes down equals the fact that you did positive behaviors. So that's what it really um, uh, is, is, is corresponding to. One pound of weight loss equals a positive behavior. A positive behavior will result in a better health outcome. Now, I do recognize that many patients see this idea that we talk about modest weight loss equals health changes, but they say, thank you, that's really good. I want that health outcome and that small amount of weight loss, but I want more. And am I wrong for wanting more? And I would say absolutely not. So some people have very lofty, lofty goals, which are somewhat unachievable because of the way that the body works and the way that the the, the um, brain works. But it is reasonable for people to ask for further amounts of weight loss. And I think we talked about modest weight loss a lot because that's all we were able to achieve previously. We're now in a different era where we have actual effective treatments that get us beyond modest weight loss because a pound does not make a significant difference in a person's osteoarthritis in terms of their knees, in terms of their obstructive sleep apnea. It will make a difference in terms of their blood sugars, but there's some things that it doesn't. So getting more weight loss is, is not an unreasonable thing. It's now achievable and we should keep moving forward towards being a healthier person. So if someone wants to kind of move beyond that, you know, modest weight loss that was possible before, what would you recommend that they do? Seek medical attention and talk to a physician about the tools available? The interventions that we know that actually get the weight down beyond modest weight loss or just staying weight stable really involve talking to a healthcare provider. And because those three pillars are psychological intervention, which should be done by a professional, a counselor, a psychologist, or people who have gone through the courses learning about cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. So there's some dietitians, kinesiologists, number of other people who can really help here, but it's still professional care. Next is pharmacotherapy, actual prescription medication. Again, a physician would have to write a prescription for you. These medications work. They either increase the good hormones or block the bad 
hormones. And so that's where we're trying to get um, a, a little more of the brain saying that, let me use the stored energy that I actually have. I don't want to have excess hunger because I've got lots of energy here. Let me use it. That's what the medication does. And then finally, again, something that you need to talk to a doctor about is bariatric surgery. So if your weight is very elevated, then bariatric surgery is a very successful intervention that changes the hormones within the body and allows the body to use those to keep the weight down and to use the extra calories. So yes, I do believe that if you want beyond modest weight loss, you need to talk to a healthcare provider and they can get you there. Wow, we have learned so much tonight. Dr. Wharton, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me, Ansley. 